Mark 1, and we'll start reading with verse 9 and go through 13. Here's the Gospel according to Mark. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, quote, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Bless now this reading of Your Word, the preaching of Your Word, and our response to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Spider-Man once said, with great power comes great responsibility. And Spider-Man's a pretty popular guy around our house. We have masks lying around and suits and whatnot. I even am known to put on a Spider-Man thing, and I should have brought it as a prop today, I guess. But nonetheless, he says, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, Lord Acton, who um, lived in the 20th, early, really, 19th century, um, says this, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's a pretty famous quote. Um, Here's the point. God, in His gospel, in His good news to us, what He's done in our salvation, has done something very powerful. Done something that is great in power and therefore means that we have a great responsibility. You know, as I said the other week, if someone gives you a gift of $5, you know, that's not very much. You're not responsible for too much. I mean, that that barely buys you a Coke and a bag of chips now. But if somebody gives you $5 million, well, that's a little bit more of a responsibility that they've entrusted to you as a gift. And what greater gift has God given to us than Himself? Than His own Son, who we know He's given, who here the Father actually speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And later he'll speak again from heaven directly. Uh, And Peter says, I even heard it. He says it from heaven at the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus transfigures before them and he's meeting with both Elijah and Moses um, who represents the law and the prophets which is the whole Old Testament. And after that fact, the Father again speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. What greater gift could there be in the world? What more powerful gift could there be than God's only Son? He says it several times in a parable. It's one thing for an owner who owns a land, who owns a business, to send his servants, you know, just a, co- just a worker, to go get money. It's another thing if He sends His Son 
to go get money. And what he says they'll do when he does send his son is they'll say to themselves, oh, well, we'll kill him so we can take the business. Apparently the old man has died. And God says, woe to them who refuse my son. What greater gift? And yet, Jesus himself says there's a greater gift. There's a more powerful gift than even his coming. And that is who he comes to bring to humankind. And it's none other than the Holy Spirit. It's who we've been talking about for the past two or three weeks. God's Spirit is the greatest gift to humankind. It's the mo- he is the most powerful gift of God that He has extended to us. It may be why blasphemy not against the Father, blasphemy not against Jesus Christ, apparently you can blaspheme those two names, but to blaspheme the Holy Spirit means eternal damnation. It's the unpardonable sin that always worries us. But the fact of the matter is, if you deny the one who works in you, who brings God's salvation to you, if you blaspheme that person in the Holy Trinity, there is no salvation. It's impossible to be saved because He brings all the good gifts of God to us. God's power is not like human power that corrupts. God's power is a servant's heart. Again, God's power is accomplished not through a bazooka or AR-15s or an M1A1 Abram tank or an atom bomb. That's not how He comes. A cross is God's power cross. It always fascinates me, and I say it, and you know, excuse me if, uh, if it gets boring to you, but our symbol as Christians is like having an electric chair around your neck. It's a symbol of death, the cross is. It was not a symbol of life. We think, oh yeah, a cross, that's awesome. You know, different Celtic crosses, and we wear them, tattoo them, and so on and so forth. It's like a tattooing an ex, you know, a, a guillotine to your arm. It is a sign of death. And yet, through death, God accomplishes His power in the world. Power for salvation. (laughs) What an amazing thought. Through death, through... I mean, this is why in the early church, Christians were looked at as the weirdos. Oh, they're talking about eating somebody in there. This is my body. This is my blood. They're eating flat. They're cannibals. They say, hey brother, I love you. Hey sister, I love... They're incestuous. They, they couldn't figure them out in the Roman world. They, they categorized them as a mystery cult. As atheists. Because they only believed in one God. And who does that? Christianity has always been misunderstood. And the cross is misunderstood. Jesus' blood, who we sang about in two different songs, even this morning. I mean, what a grotesque thought that through someone's blood bleeding out, we receive God's power for redemption. Who makes that up? And yet, 
It's what we celebrate in the cross. The reason His blood is significant is because who's on the cross? This is not just a mere man bleeding out. There's been plenty of those who have bled out for us in order to enjoy our freedoms here in America. And we, we appreciate those service men and women who have died for another. But Jesus dies in such a way that no one could have done what He did and accomplished and secured for us what He accomplished. It's the power of God. Who is the power of God? It's the Spirit of God. And so this morning as I move through this, I've entitled the message, um, God's Authoritative Advocate. Because that's that's who the Spirit is. He is God's authority in our world, in our life, and He's also our Advocate which is the term that's used in John for the Holy Spirit. The first thing is this. He's God's creative order. You remember what happens in Genesis, right? In Genesis, God, in the beginning God, created the heavens and the earth, and those were without form and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. So the Spirit is flying, so to speak, over this chaotic situation. They've often called it the gap theory, you know, between verses 1 and 2 because apparently God created and yet there was no order yet until He orders the days and the seven days of, or the six days of creation. But you see the Spirit just hovering over as a, again, a dove, which is the symbol here in Mark of, at the baptism. He descends upon Jesus as a dove. And that's always a, an interesting Analogy: The Holy Spirit is not a bird. He's not a fowl of the air. And yet, he, is, he brings grace like what a dove would bring. But also, He brings order. Out of chaos, out of the chaos of our lives even, He flies over creating order. All three persons of the Holy Trinity are active in the crea- creative process. The Father, so to speak, thinks it through the Word of God, who is the Son, and it acts out in the Spirit of God. He is the activity of God, if you will. If the Father loves the Son, the love between the two persons is the Holy Spirit. That comes from St. Augustine, who, who helps us out with a deep analogy of the Holy Trinity. The love between the two members is not some fourth component of the three, but instead is so personal of a love that it is a person. It's not an it. He is a person. God brings order to the creative process, and even at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, we see again the Holy Spirit. So He's at the beginning... In Genesis 1, 2, and then at the end, in 22 of Revelation, again, the Spirit and the Bride, who is the church, say, come Lord Jesus, make things right. That's the cry of Revelation is, God will one day, in the end, make all things right. What a thought. He'll execute justice, judgment on all people, including you and me. He will make all things right. Anything that's untied will be tied. Anything that's not crossed will be crossed. 
That's the point in Revelation. So the Spirit, even at the end of time, along with the church, is saying, come Lord and make things right. Again, make order out of the chaos. You know that before you come to Christ, your life is chaotic. You're in control and quite frankly, it's a blind life. You're moving about trying to make sense of this and that. And until you have an experience where you are born of the Spirit, you will never have order, clarity in your life. I always go back to the Matrix. It's kind of the best illustration. Morpheus tells Neo, he says, I can tell you what the Matrix is, but you really won't understand it until you've experienced it. And so he has to go and make his choice. You know, the red pill or the blue pill. And there's no turning back. Once you make the decision, either you forget it all and just continue to live the way you want, or you see how far the rabbit hole goes. With the Spirit comes new life, comes new clarity. Again, think of Genesis. Go back to the beginning. Uh, And I'm trying to summarize a lot here with the Spirit all in... All in one, and I'm using Genesis and Revelation mainly to show a summary of the bookends that the Spirit is active all the way through the Bible. In particular, the beginning and the end. In Genesis, again in chapter 2, God creates mankind. And yet, He creates us out of the clay or out of the dust of the ground. And only when we become a living person is when He breathes within us His breath. The term breath is ruach in Hebrew, which is... Spirit. It's wind, breath, life, spirit. The Spirit is God's creative life force. We don't have life until we have the Spirit. And that longing in our heart that, again, St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. That restlessness about life, that uneasiness about it, that unsatisfied part of our existence is a capacity for the Holy Spirit of God. We were created for God's Spirit. It's the way He's made us. It's what we're meant to run off of. You know, I mean, you could say to yourself today, you know what, I'm going to save some money. And today I'm just going to fill up my car with my water hose. Because I'm tired of buying gas. I'm tired of being dependent on foreign oil companies. I'm done. And you can fill your car up with water, but you won't get very far because your car was not designed to run off of H2O. Before we come to Christ, outside of Christ, even Christians, we try to run off this world. We're filling up our tanks, our body, with H2O when we're made to run off premium. God's premium. And we won't ever have power to live rightly. We'll never have clarity of focus. Be able to get where we're trying to go to without God's Spirit because He is the fuel of life. He's the principle of life. He's what we've been created to hold in our bodies. It's what Jesus died for. He didn't just die to forgive you of your sins so you can live however you want. 
That seems to be the common evangelical message today. Oh yeah, He forgives you your sin just so you can live how you want. Almost like a you know, get out of jail free card. Alright, go along, happy-go-lucky. No, He's the fuel to live rightly. This is what God has secured for us in the cross is the fact that His punishment has been poured on Jesus instead of us. And that He's made a way now, opened up a gate, if you will, for the Spirit to come in to our own bodies. And our bodies can then become, as Paul says, the temple of the Holy Spirit. What a powerful thought that we can be indwelt, commune with God. Clark Pinnock, who's a theologian, somewhat of a controversial one, says, God is everywhere present, which we all agree with. But He's nowhere more present than in us. If you want to look at where God is most active, it's not out there. It's in your own heart. Your own life. That's where He's the most active. That's where He's most concerned. That's where He fits in the designed process the most. Is He out there with the trees and the forest? Sure. But where does He want to be? Right here. In the center of your soul. Not only is He God's creative order, not only is He in order to creation, to our own hearts, to the church, but He's also God's personal power. The term power obviously can be misused as I began the sermon with several quotes about warnings against misusing power. But I think those warnings can turn right around and say, if God has given us His power, who is the Holy Spirit, then how much more careful ought we to live our lives? If He's given us all we needed in the Spirit, then what kind of responsibility do we really have on our hands? It's a serious matter. He's provided what we've needed and we have rejected that. We have ignored His Spirit. We have grieved the Holy Spirit. We have quenched the fire of the Spirit that burns in our soul. Pinnock's book is called Flame of Love. And that's what he calls the Holy Spirit throughout the book is God's flame of love. Do you know that flame? The flame that warms and corrects. You know, when if you want to put a group of people to sleep, there's a few things you could do very easily. I know this because I speak in front of people and I watch them go to sleep. That's okay. I don't get offended by people sleeping. I really don't. I'm over that now. You know, used to. I preached at this little church in Pulaski, Mississippi, and there were typically six or seven people who came. They were all older, and there was this father-son duo here, and they would both go to sleep. And then this older lady back here would also go to sleep. And sometimes this other dude would fall. So I'm literally there's one person I'm preaching to, and that's no joke. Because sometimes they wouldn't all show up. So it'd only be four or five of them. 
And I, you know, so I've learned to preach to sleeping, slumbering people and to basically no one. Um, it's, a, it's yes, it is a funny thing. And, and like I've said before, the worst situation is to preach to your friends. And in college, we had to preach to our before our friends who I lived with and we joked with, and you can imagine what else with in a dorm. Um, and I'm here, I am preaching to them. They could care less. That was the toughest crowd to ever preach to. Um, there's two things you could do. One is to feed people. So if you fed people and put them in a warm room, they will go to sleep. That's You have the heat on and they've been fed, they will go to sleep. Point blank. You'll eventually, it'll get the best of you. You know, God wants us to rest in Him. It's what He calls us to. In the Spirit, we are to rest. God rested on the seventh day. Not because He was exhausted, but because He wanted to enjoy what He had created. And you know what? God provides a rest for us. Has He not provided a meal for us? For our soul, the Word of God, who is the bread of life, this is the bread of our soul. When you don't get enough of this, you are hungry. And it's tough to go to sleep when you're hungry. And He's provided for us not only His Word, i.e. the Son of God, but He's also provided for us the flame of love that warms our hearts, the Holy Spirit. So if you want to rest in God, again, I could kind of prescribe two things. The Word of God, feed on it. Get full on it. And let the Holy Spirit warm your soul. You know how it is when you meet someone who just has the Spirit of God and there's something that resonates between you and that person that warms your soul. You leave that conversation saying, there was something about that that warmed my heart in here. It's not something uh, my temperature goes up physically, but in my so- it was good for the soul. God's Spirit is good for the soul. He must come and warm our cold hearts. His flame is not controllable by us, but as the Hebrew writer says, He is a consuming fire. So when the Spirit comes in, He wants all of us. This is why Jesus summarizes the Law and the Prophets, the whole Bible, and says, what God wants ultimately is for you to love Him with all of your heart. And the Spirit accomplishes that. He can give you the love that Jesus had. He is love. That's the good news. The one who is love, not just gives love or does love, but is love can come into our hearts. We can't truly love without the Holy Spirit. We can do our best. We can make great efforts and strides, but ultimately we don't know what love is until we know who the Spirit is. It's just what Jessica read from uh, 1 Corinthians, what Paul says. You think you have knowledge, but knowledge can puff you up. It can make you think you're somebody. What ultimately is needed is love of God. That's how he begins that passage, talking about idol worship. The Spirit is God's personal power at work in our soul. It's what the judges knew. It's what the prophets 
felt when they prophesied. And our reading, uh, the first reading was in Deuteronomy was about that. Basically, the Israelites said, hey, we don't want God to speak directly to us, so give us somebody else. Well, God says, I gave you a prophet, and if you don't obey the prophet, then you'll be held responsible. What did the prophets write? They wrote this. Again, it comes back to obedience to God's Word. The Word that, guess who inspired it? The Holy Spirit. Do you see how active He is throughout the whole salvific process? You can't get rid of the Holy Spirit. He is key. And He's key to your life. He's key to my life. We must, as Paul says, walk in the Spirit. Jesus has the Holy Spirit descending on Him, flying down and resting on Him like a dove. Just as Noah sent out a raven, it found nothing. Sent out a dove, it finally found a branch. Sent out another dove, and it never came back. That's the point. He has lighted. He's landed on the one whom God has elected for salvation. He's, you know, Israel was a conduit and it all came down to one point, one person, and it was Jesus Christ. And He was elected and assured and authorized by God's advocate who is the Holy Spirit. What an amazing thing God has done for us. What an amazing salvation that He offers us in the Spirit. And yet I find that Christians never think about the Holy Spirit. We just kind of live our lives. We thank Jesus and we thank the Father in heaven, but we never pray in the Spirit. We never walk in the Spirit. And yet the Spirit is the fuel for life. He's our warming agent. He is the holifying Spirit, our advocate, the one who comes alongside of us, leading us and pointing us to Jesus Christ. He's the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, of Yahweh. He is the saving Spirit. We must connect ourselves to Jesus in the only way that we can know Him and love Him and love others is through the Spirit of love, through the Spirit of mercy, through the Spirit of grace. This morning, would you hear His call? The Spirit speaks still through this Word. Can you hear that call? Because He hovers over your life until we allow Him in. Until we allow Him access in faith. He hovers over us watching, blessing, pouring out His grace. And once you've heard, will you heed to that call? He has chosen you. He has called you by name. Why does God know the number of hairs on our head? Which is easy for some of us. Not looking at anyone in particular. Why does He know that? Not out of some kind of process of osmosis. 
but instead because He counted them this morning. The Spirit hovers over your life knowing and watching and waiting for you to open up your life to Him. Would you do that this morning? Would you heed His call and obey Him this morning? Obey the Spirit of God? Allow Him to work in a normal place, in a normal sound? Make your own body the temple of His dwelling? What a thought that that could even be possible, and yet it's what we have been called to. It is what He's calling us to. And lastly, would you herald, would you speak about this one whom God has sent this week? Would you, would you witness to His work in your life? It's easy to say Jesus has done something for you. It's a different thing when you tell someone, the Spirit of God has had me to pray for you. And yet what a powerful thing because that's what He does in our life. He reminds us. He helps us. He's the connection between the Father and the Son. If we are ever to commune with God, it is through and in the Spirit that it must be done. Would you hear Him this morning? Would you respond to Him this morning? There's never a person that you'll ever meet that wasn't created for God. Would you let Him warm your life this morning? Make you alive? He can do it, and He can do it today. Rachel, if you would, let's all stand as we respond to God now and to this Word that we've heard. Rachel, if you would come and... uh...